Hello, my name is Maiwa and welcome to Maiwa in Conversation, a podcast that aims to explore the unique perspectives of Africans. This season, I have conversations with Nigerians that are making an impact by disrupting societal and cultural norms, fighting against injustices, creating new paths and platforms, and who are showing that there are in fact limitless possibilities on the continent. On this episode, I'm talking to Emmanuel Akinwotu, a journalist based in Lagos. Emmanuel is currently The Guardian's West Africa correspondent. Before The Guardian, Emmanuel worked as a journalist at AFP and The New York Times. Emmanuel's work has also been featured in publications like The New Statesman, The Africa Report, The New African Magazine and Reuters. Emmanuel's writing and research on the continent centers on a wide range of topics, from social justice and activism in Africa to the effects of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Emmanuel's writing consistently places African perspectives and experiences at the forefront and brings these experiences to an international audience. Thank you for joining me today, Emmanuel. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So during the NSARS protests, especially towards sort of the end of the protests with the really gruesome massacre at the toll gate and the curfew that followed, it struck me that now more than ever as a society, we need journalists that we can trust. We need publications that we can trust because I think in Nigeria, we're so used to this system of misinformation and silence. And I think what made NSARS really scary, the end of it, when we were all locked up in our homes with a curfew is the fact that we just didn't know what was going on. I was too scared to walk my dog because I just thought like, am I allowed to leave my house? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I just kept thinking about these very like dystopian images that would be waiting for me if I left my house. So with this in mind, I think it's safe to say that now more than ever, Nigerian young people, especially if we are going to vote in a way that's favorable to our future and to our country, we need media that we can trust. This being said, in your opinion, what do you think is the role of journalists in societies like Nigeria? Yeah, it's like, you know, thinking back to um, to the protests, you know, I went to a few different protests, but the Lucky Togate protests. I remember going one day when someone said on the announcer, you know, don't give anyone your real name and age and address because already at that stage of the protest, so much had happened. You know, there was already like atrocities, you know. This didn't happen specifically at the Lucky Togate protest, but other protests around it, or in Yaba, in Ikeja, where, you know, groups of, of young men, thugs, were going there and attacking the protests. Um, where police were attacking the protests. People were really on guard, on edge. And and so even me kind of like navigating that, you know, wanting to talk to people and I'm working for The Guardian and trying to, in a sense, like give all these young people in this like quite momentous moment um, a voice in, in my publication. It was hard because I was having to navigate people's concerns, you know. And I realised there and then, I mean, that, you know, this is this is like, I guess, the kind of gravity of coming to a protest. What that means in Nigeria, do you know what I mean? It's like mm. it's it was quite difficult um, and sad that people were wary of everyone, wary of people who they didn't really like. I mean, they know that if you're protesting together, cool, but people were wary of their were, were, were afraid for their safety, um, and so yeah, I felt I felt very much aware of that as I was kind of navigating the protest. I guess, like, I feel as though the role of journalism, um, it's, it's such, it fulfills such a huge role, mm. you know, generally. It's like, a, it's a mix of things, right? It's like, it's documenting, it's reporting, it's recasting, mm-hmm. you know, when there are popular conceptions of things that need challenging or need to be, recast it that that's a, a role of journalism it's you know bringing things to light in the NSARS protests it was a mix of all those things it was documenting what predominantly young people were saying which was this is what we've been going through for a very long time obviously there had been past iterations of the protest so it was a way of really bringing to, to life that you know this isn't a flash in the pan this has been boiling for a long time and it's come to this stage because of 
lived experiences that have kind of tipped over the edge now. Mm. It was also a bit of unearthing because things were happening and they weren't being reported well enough. The atrocities that were happening at the protests, you know, were just astonishing. People were peacefully protesting and people were being, you know, as their constitutional right, um, you know, and they were being attacked for it, which we know happens here. But I guess you can suffer from a naivety of thinking like, oh, okay, in a hugely publicized protest, you know, especially protests in in Lagos, you know, or, or Abuja or in like capital cities, um, you know, that there would be a degree of like restraint from security forces when the kind of eyes of the country and like the wider world are on them. But that clearly isn't what happens, you know, because mm. they function the way they know how to function, you know, which is brutality often. Um, and, and so there was showing that because some of the things were publicized and very easy for people to see, like what happened in Lekitoge, which was horrific. But there were also things that happened elsewhere that didn't get as much focus. So mm. the work was also about showing what was happening elsewhere. Mm. You know, um, in Yaba, some of the most horrific things happened in places like Ajangbadi, which is like outskirts of Lagos City. Mm. You know, some really big things were happening and it was a challenge documenting them all. So there was that, there was kind of unearthing you know, and then there was also, you know, holding powers to account, questions to lawmakers, to people in power. There were several opportunities where journalists were interviewing officials, government officials, mm. and, you know, to varying degrees, they were held to account, you know. But, you know, as uh, yeah, we, we all saw many examples where the usual thing happens, right? Because when powerful people are interviewed by journalists, often the dynamic favors them. Do you know what I mean? They are mm-hmm. in a position of power in a country where, you know, it is very hard to stand up to powerful figures. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And so, yeah, like I, I guess that whole episode really showed the way the role of journalists, role of journalists and the role of journalism was really under strain. And some things were done in a way that really... I would say was helpful to people's understanding, but other things really, you know, people at protests were also felt let down. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you know, you definitely saw the way some characterizations, you know, very typical characterizations that are not exclusive to Nigeria at all, actually. You know, you see this a lot in reporting in Africa and other parts of the world, you know, where protests are framed as clashes between, you know, the police and protesters, as though they're kind of equal parties. but Often, you know, like what we were seeing at the protests were the aggressors were very clearly the police Mm -hmm. and forces in support of the police, Mm -hmm. you know. So it was less a clash and more a kind of an attack, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And people at the protests were upset. You know, I spoke to people who were saying, "Okay, you're talking to me about what's been happening, but make sure you're not saying, oh, we're clashing with them. You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. Like Mm -hmm. it's... Them, they are the ones doing this to us. We're just peacefully protesting. Do you know what I mean? Like, and people were having that frustration. People were also like, oh, you know, you work for The Guardian. They may not necessarily have even read anything I wrote, but oh, I hope you're not one of those people saying, you know, that we're doing this or that we're doing that because people were conscious that, you know, we're peacefully protesting in a moment that feels really galvanizing, that feels unique to our times. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's often being portrayed in the media as though the protesters are the aggressors, are the people who are kind of on the edge of the law. Yeah. I mean, you know, as though they're not doing something that is their constitutional right to do. Um, and so people were conscious of the framing of that. People were also conscious of not being depicted as though they're this kind of like angry young mob, but actually as young people who are fed up, who are very consciously, very intentionally exercising a right because they want a specific goal you know what i mean like they they want change it's not just like an expression of like feeling for no reason with no end mm-hmm. you know people had a very clear end in mind you know so people were also really kind of like upset about characterizations that made them seem as though they're just out here because they have nothing better to do mm-hmm. you know people had things to do you know people had jobs do you know what i mean but people were fed up yeah I think all these things matter. All these things that you're saying matter because I think as a person who 
was really relying on journalists in Lagos, journalists present at the protest to tell us what was going on sort of citywide. Mm. I think all these different considerations are really important. And I really like that you talked about how journalism for you is bringing things to light and unearthing because mm. I often think about the role of truth in journalism. Mm. And I think on one hand, we rely on journalists to tell us what is really going on. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, societies are extremely complex. And oftentimes it's a question of perspectives mm. and not really the truth with like a capital T. Mm. In your professional experience, is the truth something journalists and publications are concerned with and if not should they be concerned with this sort of like the truth like a capital t one truth yeah it's you know saying the truth it feels such like it's, it's quite a fraught and difficult aim right to kind of grapple with in a way because i know in one sense yes there's the facts of what has happened right but i guess for me you are you're doing your best to to reflect the events in as accurate a way as possible. So you're, you're aspiring to the truth, right? You're aspiring to the reality of what happened. But, but you also have a frame of looking at it, right? Because mm -hmm. so many different things affect our frame of looking at everything. You know, power, uh, structures of power, gender, race, ethnicity, you know, lived experience. You know, so what is the truth to me is not necessarily the truth to you. Um, but you, you adopt a frame to use and reflect the events that you're reporting on back to people. And in a way, that's hard because different, you know, two or three different people are going to be there and we're not going to reflect the events in the exact same way. Mm. I mean, there are some things that we, we can't argue about, right? Someone said one thing or someone has misquoted someone. There's the truth of that that's like much more black and white right? Like, report as fact what someone did or didn't say, right? Or, but it starts to become trickier when you're interpreting an event. You know, I've, I've seen this in the reporting of, for example, Shi, Shi, Shiites in Nigeria mm -hmm. protests. I've gone to Shiite protests where I've gone and other journalists have gone and I've read reporting about the same protests. And it's like we were at a different place. Mm -hmm. Um, because people see, people have a frame of looking at people and events, you know, that informs what they see as the truth, you know. So, it's, and, and this is hard, this is what makes journalists not very well trusted, right? Because, you know, you see different journalists, different media printing different things about the same event that they're reporting on. I guess for me as an individual, I try to be honest about the frames I'm applying to the events I have. Mm -hmm. If I'm going for a protest, you know, my frame is that they have a right to be there. My frame is not that, you know, why are they there? Because you definitely see some journalists going and speaking. I've been in like groups of journalists where they're kind of like, oh, but they were taking it too far. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So they've kind of like given off that there is a, they have a sensibility around protests that already is kind of like predisposed to seeing it as being quite, an aggressive action do you know what i mean whereas for me mm. i don't see it as an aggressive action i see it as actually like a very kind of ordinary action to take actually a very kind of like healthy ordinary needed um action mm. you know so and then and that then determines how we both interpret what has happened you know so i guess like there's one thing is about i think for me it's um, being honest about the frames i apply to the events i'm reporting on um and be honest and then and, and that's why it's this really important to have, as we do have, a diversity of media because people know how people can identify with the media and know what values they have and know what frames they're applying on the events that they're reporting on. Mm. And so, again, you know, I've, like a few months ago, someone in government called me an NSARS apologist um, when I was uh, trying to organize an interview. Um, and I kind of dismissed it, but later on, I could see why they called me and NSAS apologists because to them, they saw the protests as being something that was an aggressive action yeah. that didn't need to happen. It happened. But for me, I saw it as a very understandable action from a group of people who had suffered too much. 
you know, so apologism for them was me simply feeling that they had a right to be there and that I understood why they were there, you know? Mm. And so that's going to reflect in my reporting. I'm going to report what happens there and I'm going to kind of give prominence to the people who are voicing these complaints and I'm going to reflect what has happened and frame what has happened in a way that gives those voices the space to share what's happened to them. And, in, and when events happen, if, a, 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 if there is a clash, quote-unquote clash, you know, well, for me, the clashes that we saw on social media that were reported as clashes were quite often police dragging protesters from one place to another, mm-hmm. beating protesters. You know, we saw them shooting at protesters. We saw punching them, you know, insulting them, you know. And then we saw groups of protesters throwing rocks back, mm-hmm. you know, or throwing plastic bottles back. So that's less a clash, that's more, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, that's probably closer to a siege, really, you know, against yeah. kind of peaceful protesters who are just kind of, at that point, they're just grabbing whatever they can to kind of defend them. Protect themselves. Yeah. Protect yeah. So the truth is such a fraught thing. And I think people know now that really the best thing for me as a journalist is to aspire to as close to the truth as I can, as I, as is humanly possible to, and also to reflect the dynamics as I see appropriate, mm-hmm. you know, to kind of like, show that, you know, events are not, that events that happen, they, they just don't happen in a black and white way. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? If, if, if a police officer shoots tear gas in a protest and protesters throw rocks back to me, you know, that is not two equal forces mm-hmm. at war with each other. Do you know what I mean? That doesn't compare to what is being kind of inflicted on them, which is tear gas, which is something that causes real physical damage in a much more kind of serious way. And it's affecting multiple people at once. And and that that is often, you know, as we see in so many protests here, they throw tear gas, they use water cannons on protests as though that's like, a reasonable way to tell protesters to, to kind of mm-hmm. stop. Firstly, they, they have, they're exercising their right. And also, you know, like why nothing justifies in that context, the use of force against them, you know? So, yeah, I guess this is a kind of longer winded way of trying to say that you're aspiring to the truth, but you're aspiring to the truth based on you're applying different ideas that, you know, are subjective. Some readers want to read about the event who don't believe that. It is mm-hmm. really constitutional right, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's a fact, right? But it's also, to some extent, it's an interpretation because we live in a context where the, the government, it's in our constitution that it's it's a right to protest, but the government, you know, applies laws that, you know, kind of blind the face of that. Do you know what I mean? That you mm-hmm. know, And they will say things that are arbitrary. You know, for example, they said during the NSARS protests, you know, because of COVID safety, that there shouldn't be protests. So that's obviously a law, but we also see regularly rallies, you know, and political events Mm -hmm. and parties of the elites, you know, that don't seem to kind of take into consideration COVID safety. So, you know, people made a decision for themselves how to apply that. Do you know what I mean? Um, Mm -hmm. uh, And then when I'm reporting on that, I'm kind of reflecting all of that, but making value-based judgments, right? Because of the values that you know, I feel are important to the story. I think it's really interesting that you define truth as a fraught thing, because I think that's not really something that I put into consideration when reading a lot of local newspapers. Mm. Um, A lot of the time, I just look at many journalists as people who are just promoting the political and economic interests of the publications they work for. Mm. And when you look at mainstream Nigerian news outlets, whether it's written media or it's on TV, they're owned by very prominent people and organizations that, I mean, you don't have to be an insider to know that they have their own political and economic interests. Mm. With this being the case, how, how have you navigated writing for publications that have their own political leanings? Have you ever been in a situation where your editor is telling you this is not going to fly, but you feel very strongly that you're not willing to 
tweak your perspective mm-hmm. to fall in line with the perspective of the publication and its owner. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad that there isn't an obvious example where this has happened because <laughs> I'd be really afraid to put it on the record <laughs> if it had. Um, this is true. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm glad that I really actually don't have anything to say in that, for that from, from my personal experience. I feel like I'm quite lucky to, to work for mm. an organization where broadly um, the values I have as a person feel synonymous with the values that the paper would at least purport to have. Um, yeah. You know, The Guardian is a very kind of liberal paper and um, gives a voice to minorities and minority perspectives and to the disadvantaged. But like, those are things that sit very easily with me, um, I think, and are quite, are quite hard on, on kind of big corporate powerful interests, you know, which is, again, something that sits quite easily with me. Mm. I definitely think that that's helped me, right, like in a way, because it's meant that I haven't had it as like obvious kind of like kind of fractious issues around the way I've framed reporting. Definitely there's been, you have times where something is framed in a way based on individual people's perspectives, but as with the paper as a whole, I haven't had that issue so much. But I think what I would say is it's one of the reasons why it's, it's so important to have diversity of media in a way. And it's really important to have independent media in Nigeria because mm-hmm. Like you said, we have this issue in in Nigerian press and media where powerful interests, you know, really determine a lot. And and where a lot of the owners of Nigerian media are kind of in bed with, do you know what I mean, big mm-hmm. political interests or um, financial interests within the same kind of group and they're interchangeable. And that definitely impacts what gets reported. Um, mm. it, impacts the way those papers fail to protect journalism that attacks um, or that kind of ex- attacks is maybe the wrong word, but like exposes wrongdoing, you know, political wrongdoing, corporate wrongdoing. There are so many things here that is, is unfortunate. You know, for example, it's been, a, it's been a while since I bought a Nigerian newspaper, actually, in same um, physical form. But, you know, like maybe last year, um, late last year was the last time I did and maybe like two years ago I used to do that regularly and um, you know a lot of the ads are banking ads right you know like mm-hmm. there's newspapers where the first 10 pages are basically just banks you know like or, or the banks doing four page adverts mm-hmm. Also, and I think that that probably has something to do with how little um, reporting there is on kind of corporate corruption mm-hmm. in Nigeria and corruption in Nigeria, you know, because that, that, you know, we, we report heavily on like the government, you know, and c- corruption allegations sort of thing. The corruption in the corporate sector is really underreported. Yeah. And it's hard to think that there isn't a relationship between the fact that banks heavily are a big proportion of like the advertising revenue of a lot of these newspapers also, while you write for The Guardian, and this is a publication where there is some alignment between your views and the views of the publication, mm-hmm. you're still working in Nigeria. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah, our country does not have a very, how should I say, positive relationship with journalists that speak or rather write the truth from a perspective that I suppose is widely felt by people who would oppose the powers that be. Have you ever felt at all in any danger when openly expressing your views or when writing interviews between you and senior government officials? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I've had some moments that felt hairy to me. You know, I've had... um, a few times where I'd written something, you know, I've had the army speak to me about my reporting. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, I've had like government officials just kind of like either complain or, you know, I've also like had situations where they've, you know, tried to stop me going somewhere. Uh, I've been tr- attempted to be bribed by like quite senior aides before to stop me going somewhere where they knew it was going to be obvious what was happening there. Um, you know, you get all these things, and and but but to be honest, like 
operate in such a kind of privileged space. You know, you know that they know that you're working for international media. They hear the way, you know, they hear from how you, how your voice is that, right? That your, your accent, that you're probably a dual national. Um, those things afford you protections that most Nigerian journalists don't have. Um, mm-hmm. So in a way, I, I, I definitely have more privilege in that way. It doesn't necessarily mean I even do more hard-hitting reporting. I mean, some of the reporting and investigations that come from Nigerian media, as conflicted and as problematic as parts of it is, is phenomenal, you know. And they do that in the face of risks that are kind of like really hard to kind of take on. But those aren't risks that, quite frankly, I face in the same way, you know. Mm -hmm. When I get quips, really, you know, Mm -hmm. like, a government aide saying, oh, you're an NSAR's apologist or another one saying, oh, we saw your reporting on that. You know, a kind of tongue-in-cheek comments more, mm-hmm. but not really, not the threats that I would face if I didn't have a British-sounding accent, if I didn't write for an international news organisation. A lot of the things definitely, if they were to be published in a Nigerian newspaper, you know, we know what happens to Nigerian journalists when they write things government don't like. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, just just yesterday, I think a journalist from the ICIR was summoned by the DSS. Um, you know, we've seen the army go into newsrooms, destroy computers, shut it down, lock up journalists just in the last few years. You know, we've seen bloggers, especially bloggers, which is something that is... And, you know, because the media landscape in Nigeria is really... It's so broad, especially within states. There's a lot of... And then I think something that isn't as well sufficiently understood, the ways in which blog sites and smaller news sites really can get to local governments in a way that's quite shocking. Mm -hmm. You know, we've seen bloggers writing for blog sites that don't have traction on a national level, but within states and within key constituencies within states really are like hotly read. And we've seen those bloggers exposing corruption or exposing malpractice be disappeared, basically, you know? Or we've seen, like, critics disappear um, or be locked up arbitrarily. Um, and so the things they face are astonishing. And that, that determines the context that we have in Nigerian media where a lot of it is deferential, mm-hmm. you know, to power because there are clear risks from veering away from that. I always like to have a few questions that are geared towards young people that maybe aspire to the profession of the person I'm interviewing. And so I'm going to ask, talk us through how, um, how you go about investigating a particular issue or event in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. And I'm asking this because Nigeria is notoriously opaque and difficult to study or investigate. And I think for many young people who want to get into investigative journalism, they don't know where to start or how to go about, you know, getting interviews with insiders or, or even just framing the narrative. Right. Yeah. I I guess um, for me, Firstly, you know, I, I, you know, I should say, like, for me, I don't see myself really as an investigative reporter. Like, I, I, I see myself as a journalist, and I've done, I've done some investigations. I've been a part of others. I'm answering it from that, from that perspective. Um, I think something we've done, I've done in the past is, you, you see an issue that is like widely misconceived, you know, in that, you know, that people have really kind of odd opinions about or that in your mind doesn't reflect the truth. And then you set about, you know, thinking of ways that you can correct it, you know, that you can kind of like show people that what they see isn't really what's happening. Um, You know, an example is there, I remember, this isn't really an investigation per se, but this is something I looked into quite early on when I moved to Nigeria. So I moved from London in 2016 and that later and I was staying with family um, and I remember I was having a discussion with some of my family members um, that were where they were basically talking about this ban on begging there was a ban on begging at the time um, which I found obviously really perverse I mean that's just horrific and so and you know really fits into this kind of 
idea that's kind of gripped like elites in Lagos, which is that you can kind of overnight turn Lagos into a kind of Dubai-esque city. Um, and, and, you know, a kind of key pillar in this idea is basically just disappearing the poor or finding ways to make the poor less visible. And so this was kind of a kind of key part of that, I think. And people were in my family that I expected to kind of be outraged about it were supportive of it, were sympathetic um, of the government um, adopting this policy. And it really got to me. And, and, but in the discussions that we had, I realized that there were ideas of the poor in parts of the middle class that are just quite shocking and that I learned to, con- to find quite common in Nigeria. You know, um, ideas that, you know, people who are poor, you know, you know just very kind of classic right-wing things. It's like kind of your own making. Yes, you had mm-hmm. you were given dealt a shorthand a bad hand from life, but you've also kind of played it badly. You're made it, you're making bad decisions. You also kind of want to be that way. People who are begging, you don't realize that this is a business, this big business that they're making, you know. Yeah. Or they go back to their homes in Lekki yeah. and it's like, no, they don't. You know, they, they beg on the streets. They pretend that they don't have anything. You'll be surprised. There's people like that, that own land, you know, you'll hear all these kind of ridiculous things, you know, um, and so when this begging ban happened, I was talking to an organization in Lagos called um, Just Empowerment Initiative, and they were talking about the ways in which this ban was being enforced. And basically, uh, uh, I can't remember the exact agencies, but they were going around, driving around, and they were picking up people who were begging, and they were taking them to um, uh, these kind of mobile courts where you would be ch- you'd be fined. I can't remember exactly what the fine was, but the fine was something that, you know, was small to maybe like to me or you, but it's definitely like more than what these people can afford, like 10, 10K, 10,000 mm-hmm. or something, you know, and obviously they can't pay it. So then they get detained until they're able to pay it until they get some, or until they can get someone who can pay it for them, which meant in a lot of cases that they were being detained indefinitely, mm-hmm. you know, um, and there were people who were dying in these centers that they were being detained in and then when they died they weren't their families weren't even being informed you know uh, people were dying from firstly people were, were being held unconstitutionally and then they were being held in rooms of like 50 100 200 people cramped no space to move you know using the toilet in the same space no space to like clean themselves, barely any meals. You know, people died of all sorts of things. People had illnesses. They weren't given access to medical treatment, died in the detention center. Um, officials were not telling their next of kin who were going there trying to find out information about them that their next of kin had died, you know? Um, and this is all happening in a context where you know, they were, they were able to kind of like escape accountability really because, you know, you're picking up a beggar. They likely don't have identification, mm-hmm. you know, likely don't have people who are going to come out for them and say, where are they or count for them? You know, so a lot of the people who are being mistreated or being, who, who died in these centers, they weren't accounted for, you know, and then we were, we, JEI, this organization, and then by extension, Myself, we were only seeing the few that were accounted for. Um, and, and I did an article that was on that, which I haven't gone back to read, really. And, and it was early on, as I was early on, kind of as a, as a reporter in Nigeria. And I'm, I'm sure there, was, there would be some things I would do better and differently now. But it was an example of how do you kind of find out the facts of what's happening when, you know, the facts, firstly, are so egregious and also the government are not going to help you. Mm-hmm. You know, so basically you want to go talk to the facility and obviously they just deny anything that you say is happening. They deny all allegations. They don't give you any information that will actually corroborate what they're saying. So you can't kind of fact check anything that they're saying. Um, you get kind of a government line from officials that aren't really connected to these centers, which is that, you know, we'll investigate any um kind of malpractice. If you ask them for any evidence that they have investigated any malpractice up until now, they won't give it to you. Mm-hmm. You know, if you kind of 
they, if you ask them to acknowledge that this is happening, they will kind of say the least and they don't really want to acknowledge anything. Um, you know, they'll kind of say, actually, these aren't, you know, detention centers. These are rehabilitation centers where people are doing skills and learning, and are learning to, to get themselves out of poverty. And we're not detaining people arbitrarily, actually. We are helping them come out of poverty. But, you know, I asked for evidence of this, you know, at the centers that we knew these people were being held in, and they wouldn't show us, you know, or they wouldn't show me, you know, so... They acted as though they had something to hide or they didn't, they didn't want something to come to light that was happening. In that context, it's hard. I think something that is important in a lot of reporting is just not to expect the government to help you, but to try and find ways of finding out what's happening. You know, in Nigeria, it's because, yeah, you know, we have a freedom of information law, but in many parts of the world, these laws are very hard to enforce. You know, governments everywhere, find ways to kind of not do it. And, and the law exists in Nigeria and the government rarely gives information on the basis of this law. So we had to go about through JEI, talking to families of people who were in these centers, finding evidence, finding IDs, the few of them that were had identification, you know, documenting that, um, eyewitness statements, um, you know, that things of that nature. Um, like, like another example is I can think of a lot of stories I've done where, you know, again, like government or the army, they just fly. I mean, you know, NSARS is a kind of clear example, right? We saw, we watched on various different live streams on Instagram. I think there were about three people that I saw who were live streaming what happened at the Lekki Tollgate protests. So, and, and, and on one live stream, on DJ Switch's live stream, I think there were about 150,000 people watching what was happening, you know. So we were, many of us were watching the protest unfold, hearing the gunshots, seeing people running away, seeing people bleeding on screen. There was one moment where the protesters were trying to remove a bullet from someone's body. Mm-hmm. I remember that. And we were da- they were live streaming that. And the army said that they weren't even there. You know, we saw soldiers on screen. They said that they weren't there. That it could have been people wearing army fatigues. And then a week later, (laughs) they said, okay, yeah, they were there, but they didn't actually shoot any live rounds. Right. And then the story changes again, saying we were there, we shot live rounds, but we shot at people who were being aggressive towards us, right? Who were, they we were, we were shooting in self-defense, you know, that actually some soldiers were injured from there, from that, from the scene, you know. Then they said, you know, and they were saying contradictory things, you know, at the same time. You know, I think I, I remember at one point they said that the, Im- the, the images of soldiers at the scene could have been photoshopped. And this was, as I think, even after they had admitted that they were at the scene. That for me was what was just so annoying because it's literally just like, that's not how live TV works. We all held our smartphones in our hands and watched in real time as people died and you're acting like this is some sort of CGI. Literally. <laughs> like literally some sort of yeah. CGI, I don't even know, simulation. A month or two after, the government called this meeting with international media because obviously, again, like, they, they know how to ignore local and Nigerian media reports. They don't, you know, we know the attitude that Nigeria, the Nigerian government has towards the Nigerian media, but they have at least some semblance of not wanting their dirty laundry out in public, mm-hmm. you know, to certain degree with international media. So I guess like they, they called a meeting in Abuja saying, you know, the reporting around this thing has been misinformed and you don't really understand the real picture. And let's give you access to the ministers that matter so that they can really explain to you that, you know, the way you've been reporting about this NSAS thing is not, it's not what meets the eye, you know? And I remember putting to the um, attorney general, um, uh, Mr. Malami, asking him, you know, this, the, the events that happened at the Lekki Tollgate was live streamed on Instagram. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like a video posted after the fact. It was, in a, it was a live stream. Are you saying that that could be doctored in some way? 
And he was like, yes. I, I, no, I remember saying, you know, like Facebook have kind of already said that it's not possible. It's impossible. To doctor a live stream. Um, you know, if it's live on their platform, it means what you're seeing is what's happening. Unless someone is manually, do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it, it, it is a, it's a trustworthy, it's, it's not possible to manipulate the stream itself. Um, and he said, well, you know, technology these days is very advanced. There could be technology that even Facebook is not aware of that could make people... Right, on its app. Yeah, yeah, literally. That, that could make people... You know, obviously, this is... You know, people... When, when, when government ministers say things or deny the truth in such a kind of brazen, uh, unbelievable way, you know, it, I think it gives this impression that these people are stupid or these people are kind of dumb or... No, no, these are like highly qualified people who are just sticking to the script, however ridiculous the script is. Mm -hmm. You know, he's an attorney general. He's a highly qualified person. You know, he knows that. I I believe that he knows that the events that happened on that we saw on live stream are very similar, a very kind of (laughs) a fair reflection of what happened in reality, you know, Mm -hmm. but he's, he's there in a meeting that was designed to, try to show journalists that what had happened, the, the truth of what had happened. He was denying that a live stream happened and he was saying that a live stream was, was faked, basically. You know? And so it's, it's just, you're just living in a context where they don't really, it's just, it's so cynical mm-hmm. that it's just hard to engage with, you know? And so I think in a way that makes it easier I mean, we're all, the best investigative reporting anyway is not relying on, on the government's account of what's happening. It's finding different ways to prove the effects, the events of, that have happened. I think that for me, if anyone's like listening to this, any advice I'd give is just to, is to find the facts of the case in whatever way you know how. I think a good way is you know, always through like people who have seen it, people who... Yeah, people who've witnessed it, who were there. You know, I guess like a a really great um, news article that came out or investigative article that came out after the Lekki Tollgate incident was in Premium Times. I think it was Nicholas Ibekwe. And he did, if I'm saying his surname correctly, and he, he did a report where he spoke to people. There was like a community of people who lived, you know, on the Lekki Tollgate, on the Lekki side of the Lekki Tollgate, there is like... It's, you know, it's by the water. And there's, some, there's a community that's, that lives by that water. Mm. Um, uh, on the other side of the fence, you know, that, that the main road leading up to Lake Itoge is fenced. And so I think he, he was really quick um, and really brilliantly realized that those people probably had a bird's eye view of everything, mm-hmm. you know, and went there and spoke to them. And it turned out that they did. They, had, they knew a lot. They saw a lot of what happened that night and basically was able to build a good account of what happened at the toll gate through eyewitness accounts. And people there were so shocked by what had happened, at what they'd seen, that you know, many of them were prepared to go on the record with their full names wow. and identity, you know, which is really hard to do in investigative reporting. You know, I've done so many, forget investigative per se, but like just articles where people... You know, rightly because of you know the fair recriminations, do you know what I mean, are anonymous. But they were just so shocked by what the government was saying and what they had seen, you know, and the, the disparity between those things that they were, they just wanted to be on the record because they didn't want there to be any kind of way of people saying, well, who is that person really? You know, they wanted to kind of add as much validity mm. to their accounts as possible. That, that was a really good example of a way in which eyewitness accounts can be so powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, he spoke to, to several people and corroborated a lot of the, the and, and the different accounts cross-corroborated each other. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I just, you know, just there are a lot of like basic, obviously there's so much sophisticated tools now, um, ways in which you can kind of verify video footage and images. They, they happened when they purported to have happened and, and that the images have not been manipulated and, mm. and, um, techniques and um, open source data that we can use to kind of find out information about the events and about movements. You know, for example, in the CNN investigation that happened after where they were really good at just showing, you know, where um, 
the soldiers ducked from where they left and went, how they approached the toll gate, how they were already shooting before they reached the protesters, uh, using satellite imagery, you know, um, mm-hmm. and all these kind of techniques. But, I, you know, if you don't have access to all those things, really underground reporting is invaluable still. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's compelling. You know, you get enough people who were there who share their stories and you find facts that validate each other in it. Um, and and if, and because if people are there and and they are telling the truth, then there will be facts that emerge from different people's accounts that maybe you didn't even start off being aware of, and it adds kind of power to hmm. retelling what's happened. And I think this perfectly leads to my my next question, which is that you've worked for really large, or rather you've written for really large, prestigious publications like the New York Times and, of course, the Guardian. What advice do you have for young Nigerians who want to write for publications on that level? Yeah, I'd say some good advice would be to about pitching. Firstly, is you know to really think about the publication you're pitching to before you sent them a pitch. You know, think about what they've covered, what they would typically write. You know, what they'd have give space for. You know, I definitely have received pitches with, at the Guardian, and definitely I done this loads probably definitely actually like when I was like starting off where you're pitching to an organization and you've not thought deeply enough about what they're likely to write mm-hmm. you know so, you know like for example pitching to the Guardian which is that like, quite like you know like I said like quite um liberal and has a kind of like left of center outlook um uh broadly and people kind of pitching about how this corporation is like, you know, in a way that a lot of corporations do kind of like, they have like kind of corporate social responsibility programs. Mm-hmm. And I can't get the, the and you know, I've had someone talk to me about Shell. I remember one time I was talking to someone about trying to find out about organizations that were doing good work during. Oh, no. Now, no, no, no. During the lockdown <laughs> in Lagos, you know, trying to find out like, you know, which kind of groups of people, organic, ground up grassroots organizations or small medium enterprises were really kind of like filling in the gap because, you know, the lockdown in Lagos in Nigeria was brutal, like in many African countries mm-hmm. in the global south. And, you know, who was trying to kind of, and, and, you know, the government were doing very little, you know, and they were, t- they, I remember someone said to me, yeah, you can kind of focus on the small organizations and the kind of local, but really it's the big corporate companies that are, doing the work you know i had someone else who said to me that yeah you can you can often focus on these kind of local organizations that are really have very little means and are doing very insignificant um things and at the expense of the big movers and shakers as as he put it you know who are really who don't get the focus that they deserve and you know when i asked for who the movers and shakers were they're big corporate companies yeah you know what i mean Nigeria, and which was just like, again, you know, maybe if I was writing for a different news organization that could fly, but it's like the Guardian, like, come on, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's not exactly the place where I'm going to write about how Shell is saving black Africans before in Nigeria. Do you know what I mean? Like from, so I think pitching, and this comes up a lot in pitching, where like sometimes people pitch to the wrong organization, you know. And it's a good pitch, but it's not for the right place. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think definitely giving thought to that. And also, you know, just doing research. Who's the best person to pitch to? You know, a sad thing that I definitely experienced a lot of is, firstly, maybe your pitch isn't even that great, but also you're pitching it to the wrong person entirely. Mm-hmm. And then when they ignore you, maybe they're busy doing other things and they're not like kind enough or they're too busy to kind of pass it to the right person. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of... and. So something I'm always, I'm, you know, you can find on social media who the best person is to pitch to, even just searching the editor for the relevant section, you know, finding their contact details or their email or asking someone from that organization, actually, who maybe has open DMs on Twitter mm-hmm. or who has an email you found. You know, I have an idea about this thing, but I don't know who to approach in your organization. Would you be kind enough to let me know that's that's a really good way and that's a way in which i've been able to find the right person i think also just about 
thinking about the audience of the place that you're writing for too, you know, quite often I've had people pitch, um, and I've done this as well, like I pitched something because I remember I, I had a favorite, or, you know, magazine or new, or or newspaper, and I really wanted to get something in there, but you have to think really about what their audience is likely to want to read because that's what the editor's thinking about. So definitely thinking about that and and definitely just to, you know, to, to make contacts, you know, like um, something I was really bad at early on is like you make contact to people and then you lose their number or you, you don't check in enough. And, and contacts that you, you know, just to kind of cater to the contacts you have because, you know, it it will come up in ways that will be really invaluable or could be really invaluable later on. Another piece of good advice is just to always to recognize your shortcomings mm-hmm. in what you don't understand about a story. I will approach a, to- a topic and I will try and find the best people who can just talk to me a bit about that subject because I, as an individual, I'm not an expert on many of the things I'm writing about. You're really trying to find out as much as you can about this so that you can apply and be aware of the nuances around this subject so that you don't write from a bit, you don't write ignorantly, you know? So mm-hmm. it's always just to reach out and, un- and find and read as much as possible, but really reach out to the people who know much more than you do mm-hmm. and can kind of give you a solid foundation in approaching whatever you're writing about. That would be another kind of sound, I think sound advice. Um, and maybe last, oh, sorry. Yeah, maybe that, that's enough. Sorry, I don't know if you have one more. I mean, <laughs> the people want to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess um, also just like really to think about ways in, of covering things that maybe other people haven't done, you know, as well is important. Um, you know, there's a journalist who recently reached out to me. Um, his name is, um, uh, I've forgotten his name. I think it's Aditayo, Ope Aditayo, I think. I might be saying his name wrong. I'll try and check now. But he's really, one of the things I like about his work, he's a university student mm. and been freelancing a lot. And when he, when he kind of reached out to me, I'd already read a lot of his work and I really like the way he tries to find subjects that are underreported or that are reported in a way that he feels like he can add something really unique to it. I think so often people can kind of pitch things that, have been done enough already sort of thing, but aren't trying to kind of add a, add something different to what it is, you know, like add understanding, add to our, our understanding of the issue or, or, or to kind of take it further. So I think also that's something to always keep in mind, like how can you, this story that you're pitching about, maybe if it's already known or it's already in the public domain, how can you kind of add to it in a way that gives it real value and will make someone feel like, yeah, we need, maybe we've published about this already, but maybe we've not kind of focused on this kind of key part that you're bringing to the table. Mm. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I think this, this is like the perfect way to end this section and move on to something that's a bit more, that's a bit lighter, a bit more hopeful, because I feel like we've been talking about like very heavy, yeah. <laughs> very heavy topics. <laughs> So we're going to move on to the rapid fire questions. And this is just so listeners get like an idea of who you are outside of being a journalist. Um, So I'll, I'll give you two options and you choose. Yeah. You choose one of the two. Yeah. So are you ready? Yeah. Go for it. All right. Podcast or radio? Podcast. Online or in print? Uh, In print. Instagram or Twitter? Twitter. Newspapers or news on television? Newspapers. City break or beach holiday? Beach holiday. I used to be city break, but I can't. No, beach holiday for sure. Life is stressful. (laughs) (laughs) Would you rather write an interview or an essay? Interview or essay? Interview for sure. People I have the chance to speak to have more interesting things to say than I do. Fair enough. (laughs) Lagos or London? Oh, that's an impossible question. You know what? I think I feel, sorry, am I allowed to like chat a bit or do I have to just answer it? No, gun to the head. Lagos (laughs) or London? Okay, okay. (laughs) London, London, because my family is in, my immediate family are in London. 
and um yeah and and I've made a lot of really close friends here but my my closest friends are still in London so if I was gonna that's, that's a good cop out that's a good <laughs> <laughs> London like being in England being in the UK then no I, I wish I could kind of evacuate London somewhere else <laughs> yeah yeah fair enough jollof rice or fried rice jollof rice for sure Although fried rice is like a grieve from jollof rice sometimes. Yeah, it's like I only eat fried rice just like as a jollof break. Exactly. It's never my first choice. Yeah. <laughs> Akara or moi moi? Akara for sure. Photojournalism or written journalism? R- written journalism. Activism on social media or activism on the streets? Um, oh, what would I rather cover? Oh, on the streets for sure. But yeah, like, just to quickly say, though, I do think that sometimes activism on social media is kind of like, can be covered in a way that's like slightly disparaging. Um, mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. And it is very valid. And it is sometimes more valid because you operate, especially in Nigeria, where to come out and protest, we've seen what happens to protesters. Mm-hmm. So online spaces are, are the safest way. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Tea or coffee? tea i can't have more than one coffee a day but i can i can back tea from morning to night fair enough fiction or non-fiction oh definitely fiction yeah would you rather watch the film or read the book oh it really depends i mean yeah it really depends that this is probably not the most academic thing to say but yeah we'll probably watch the film because i probably am reading fair enough because yeah. <laughs> sometimes like the the plot is compelling, but I don't want to dedicate hours reading it. I'd rather just see it. Condense it for me and like Yeah. Give me the highlights. <laughs> <laughs> because often then you can go back and I feel like, you know, I can I I feel like I can imagine the story away from I, it it doesn't feel like it can be necessarily has to be dominated by the film I've watched. Yeah. Mm. Lastly, urban or rural? Or it's a bit hipster to say rural, right? Because it can be such a nice getaway. But yeah, urban for sure. Same. <laughs> <laughs> I can't live in the in the in the outskirts. In the boondocks. <laughs> <laughs> for real. So in this last section, I'd like well, I'd like you to share the three texts that have shaped the way you think. And I say texts because it doesn't have to be a book. Some people have talked about poems, quotes. Um, lyrics to songs. So yeah, three three written bodies of work that have shaped the way you think. This is such a tough question. <laughs> um, a great question, but it really forces you to trawl back through your life in a way. Um, but yeah, I'll start with Simon Armitage, Mother Any Distance. Um, it's a poem. And um, I, I read it when I was about 15. It was in this school anthology we had. Um, and at the time I was kind of, I was really into poetry, but I wasn't revealing that to friends yet. Um, uh, and, and this book really kind of helped that take off really. And, um, the book is, a, the poem is about the relationship between a mother and a son and how it's evolving as they grow older. Um, and, and it's really moving. And, um, yeah, I, I guess also honorable mention to, um, Nii or Sundari, Not My Business which was also in the anthology and the first time, so sorry to cheat, <laughs> but the first time I'd read a poem by a Nigerian author and that also kind of set me off in that direction too in terms of reading more Nigerian literature. And um, secondly would be um, Benedict Anderson, Imagine Communities, um, which um, is a book about um, nationhood nationalisms um, and um and yeah, it's a book really that's become more or stayed so relevant since I read it at university. Um, and, you know, it feels really pertinent now in terms of, you know, discussions with Nigeria, in Nigeria, you know, which feel kind of as, li- as live as ever um, about whether Nigeria, as it's currently constituted, you know, really works for everyone in every part of the country. Um, and your last choice would um a bit traditional but yeah true to myself <laughs> is a uh, john one um 
John chapter 1 in the Bible. You know, my faith has changed um, since I was younger. Um, but um, that this is a text that really has stayed moving to me in the same way that I think I first remember really reading it. Um, on one level, it's about Jesus' divinity, you know, his introduction, his life. And, and John is the more of the four Gospels, I think, the most moving. Um, but on another level, it's, it's interesting because of this, the relationship between John and Jesus. Um, and, and John, is, his life is just set in, paving the way for Jesus. It's his life. Um, and it's moving to me because it's like, this is, Jesus coming is like the kind of, his life's mission and the kind of apex moment of his life. But it's also the moment where his life in some ways diminishes. And, you know, because at this point, He'll be overshadowed now by Jesus. His disciples leave him uh, to follow Jesus. Um, he's lonelier and he kind of like retreats from that point. Um, so that, that kind of contrast. Um, yeah. And yeah, so gone to my head, these are my choices. Thank you so much for joining me, Manuel. I feel like this was such an interesting conversation and it's going to be useful for so many people. So, yeah. <laughs> to find out more about Emmanuel's work, follow him on Twitter and Instagram at EA underscore AKIN. You can find me on Instagram where I'll be reading and reviewing books at Maya underscore reads. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.